guys, I'm Jazz. And I'm Molly. And welcome to Wild Wicked World. Or 3W Podcast if you so prefer. And we are so happy and excited to finally be recording. Oh, but I'm just going to let y'all in a little secret. This is actually our second <laughs> recording of this. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say when we re-listened to our first episode, we weren't exactly the happiest with it. So we're going to redo it for you guys. But you're still going to get it as our first episode. So you're welcome. It's been a process, right? It has been. It really has. A fun process, but, you know, it is what it is. It's all paying off now, and, and here we are. So a little bit about ourselves. Jazz, how about you take it? All right, my name is Jazz, and I'm born in 1996, February 9th. And for those who can't do the math, yes, I am 26 years old. A little bit about myself. I love to travel. Uh, me and my sisters, we've been through to almost all 50 states. Next, we're going to hit up out of the country. I love food. Food and snacks. Hot chips are my favorite. Mm-hmm. With and, cheese. Huh? With cheese. Yeah, with cheese. I'll probably eat that almost every day at work. And surprisingly, my stomach can't handle that. Uh, I love sports. Go Chiefs. Yeah, I'm addicted to fantasy football. And for those who don't know, first place champion last year. Hopefully I can repeat this year. Three straight years. Oh, yeah. Three. Yeah. Forgot to mention that. My mom ain't going to like that bragging. (laughs) Oh, and I am a Marvel super freak. My bathroom is covered in nothing but Marvel. (laughs) In other words, she's a nerd. A little bit. And proud. All right. And Molly? All right. As Jazz said, my name is Molly. I'm 41 years young and a mother of three and a stepmom to two. And I have a couple bonus kids, too. I'm engaged to be married to a man of five years, Davey. Love ya. I've been an event (laughs) DJ for 22 years and the last four owning my own DJ company, Return of the Mac Productions. I was born and raised in Kansas City with a short stint living in Tennessee. Loved it there, but want to be with my family. From an early age, I became very interested in true crime. I can remember the first book I read, Helter Skelter. And after that, I became fascinated by the true crime world. My sister, who's five years older than me, would occasionally take me to community college with her. While she was in class, I would go to the library and look up all I could on infamous people, serial killers, cult leaders, all that stuff. I'd print off papers and papers of info because, you know, we didn't have Google back then. (laughs) And I'd go home and read it all. So regardless to say, it was inevitable I was heading in this direction. So now we come to the story of how Wild Wicked World came to conception. Jazz, why don't you take it from here? All right. Well, one day, Molly and I, we were just talking. And I was just- Like every day. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, we do talk a lot. (laughs) And we're just sitting there talking at work. And I uh, was talking to her about a true crime podcast I listen to, which is called Morbid. We probably should have mentioned that we worked together. That's the first time we mentioned that. Oh, That's yeah. That's actually how we met. So. We actually worked together, if you didn't yeah. know. <laughs> and uh, I just introduced her to Morbid, and she was putting me on some of the podcasts that she likes. And we're like, okay, let's let's check them out. And one day, we're just sitting there, and I was like, Molly's like, let's start a podcast. Mm-hmm. And since then, when I tell you, we talk about it every single day. Yes, it's been consuming us for for sure. I mean, we've done other stuff because Jasmine's already what you've Jazz, you've traveled like a million times since we yeah, started this process. A lot. And we it, we kept putting a hold. And then I got mm-hmm. sick and we were just going back and forth. So we finally got it together. But it's here. And uh, we're actually, like I said, recording the first episode right now. But it's actually like what? two, three days before we're actually going to launch. Yeah. So, woo, talk about cutting it close here. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's the story of my life. Um, so since this is our first episode, 
I did it again. And we know that a lot of it will be introducing ourselves. Uh, we're just going to do a small episode for you. But don't fear, as you probably see, we have put up multiple episodes to start. Mm-hmm. That way you can get a feel for us and have plenty of content to start. Uh, so the first episode is going to be about the Kansas City Massacre. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, so if you don't know about this, most of you probably don't, you've come to the right place. <laughs> this is about a shootout that occurred on June 17th, 1933 at the Union Station in Kansas City, Missouri, which was, you know, the local big train station at that time. It was supposedly an attempt, supposedly, air quoting, an attempt to free a criminal being transported to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. So let's start with our criminal victim here, Frank Jelly Nash, born February 6, 1887. Wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> served, he served in the U.S. Army from 1904 to 1907. He was thought to have participated in over 200 bank robberies. Nicknamed Shorten from Jellybean came from his childhood due to his poise and well-groomed appearance. I don't know. How does Jellybean have anything to do about that? Because when I think of a Jellybean, I think of a weird-shaped, oddly thing. I, I, think so. of, I think of sweet. Like, I think of the candy. Something yeah. like sweet, something tiny. Yeah, I mean, I guess we both are right, because <laughs> it's what you think of a jelly bean. Uh, so his crimes dated back to 1913, when he was sentenced to a life sentence in McAllister, Oklahoma, for murder, which he was later pardoned. The pardon was due to convincing the warden he wanted to fight in the World War One, which he did, and he was released on August 19, 1918 and saw action in France. And I can't remember exactly in France. You know, I knew this when we first did this episode, but now I can't remember. It's not fresh in my brain. He actually, it was a major battle that he actually uh, participated in. So uh, I'm not sure what it is. 1920, he was given 25 years at the same prison for burglary with explosive and again pardoned. (laughs) Jesus. March 3rd, 1924, Nash started a 25-year sentence at Leavenworth Penitentiary for assaulting a male custodian, which back then was a really big deal because, you know, that's all how they were communicated back then. He uh, was appointed the personal chef and handyman to the warden, <laughs> which earned special privileges. Oh, speaking of warden, I just maybe I'm going to put a little cliff note in here. Yeah, you know, Monday was just Halloween and at our, our job, we dressed up as officers and prisoners. I was an officer. Miss Jazz over here was a prisoner. And our boss, TC, who we love, he was our warden. So I just had to put that in there because it popped out. <laughs> so anyway, the, he was appointed the personal chef and handyman to the warden, which earned special privileges. On October 1930, Nash was sent outside prison on an errand. Well, and he never returned, which, you know, I'd probably do the same thing. We're all, th- we're all thinking it. Right. I mean, you got a life sentence. Why not? I mean, they're just giving him, here, go. Take my car. He escaped to Chicago and met his future bride, Frances Lucy. I think I'm saying that right. And continued his criminal activities. December 1931, Nash helped in an escape of seven prisoners from Leavenworth Prison. Like, he went back to get his boys. Man, like, he's like, I got out. He's a team player. I mean, I would expect you to do the same. I'm just saying, okay? All right. Gotcha. I think but, I, I think I would come back for you. I think you would too. I mean, I, I I really do. I know I'd come back for you. 
<laughs> Thanks being hot, he ran to Hot Springs, Arkansas, a known hotbed hiding ground for the criminal underworld. And uh, we might sometime in the future do a whole thing on Hot Springs, Arkansas, because mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff going on there. Um, a lot of people ran and, and hid there. Nash also had plastic surgery done to correct his crooked nose <laughs> and bought a toupee to disguise his appearance to no avail because he has such distinct features. There's <laughs> the crooked nose. Yeah. <laughs> crooked. Like, he had a real hook crooked nose. If you look at pictures of him, it was very distinct nose. And I doubt the plastic surgery back then was up to par on you know, what they can do now. And it was probably under the table. I mean, who knows? I mean, of course it was under the table. Uh, so the FBI launched a massive search for Nash's whereabouts. During this investigation, it was discovered Nash had ties to Francis L. Keating, Thomas Holden, and several other gunmen who had participated in a number of armed robberies throughout the Midwest. July 7th, 1932, Keating and Holden were apprehended by the FBI, and eventually they spilled the beans on where Nash was hiding out which we now know is Hot Springs, Arkansas. With the whereabouts now known, two FBI agents, Frank Smith and Francis Joseph Joe Lackey, what a name, and the police chief of McAllister, Oklahoma, Otto Reed. Now a little background on the FBI here. It wasn't, and we definitely do one on that, but that's going to be when I know how to deep dive stuff like that because that's a big case. Um, Two FBI agents, Frank Smith and Francis Joseph Joe Lackey, and then the auto read. Now, it wasn't actually called the FBI until 1935. They went by the name the U.S. US Bureau of Investigation or, or the BOI. At this time, FBI agents were not allowed to officially carry firearms. So when they went to apprehend a dangerous person, they needed a local police officer or just a non-federal law enforcement officer because they were allowed to carry firearms. Now, a lot of Agents still did carry them. They just weren't supposed to. So this is why Otto Reed was accompanying the FBI agents to apprehend Nash. On June 16, 1933, the agents and sheriff spotted Nash enjoying a beer outside a local cigar shop. The cigar shop was owned by a man that was very comfortable and connected to the criminal underworld. They followed him to a horse bedding parlor where they placed him under arrest. The three officers and Nash then drove to Fort Smith, Arkansas to board a train bound for Kansas City at 8.30 p.m. The Missouri Pacific train was due to arrive in Kansas City at 7.15 a.m. the next morning. That's quite a long trip for a train. They must have been really slow back then because Arkansas and Kansas City isn't that far away. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know exactly where Hot Springs, Arkansas is in Arkansas, but even so, I don't know. Anyway, I just realized that rereading this. They contacted Reed E. Vetterelli, the special agent in charge of the KCMO FBI branch, to meet them there. So a number of people in the criminal world were aware of Nash's capture, friend and foe. Details were easily leaked to this world, especially considering he was apprehended in a hotbed of the criminal world. Supposedly, he had many friends in this scene, so plans were being made to free... Big quotes there. <laughs> Nash from custody. Richard Talman Galatis, Herbert Farmer, Doc Lewis Stassi, and Frank B. Malloy were the supposed masterminds behind this scheme. Vernon Miller was tasked with this escape. While at Malloy's restaurant in KC, and Vernon Miller, um, I'm just going to put a little cliff note I, I didn't add in here. 
he had big ties to like the Ma Barker game and stuff like that, which we will definitely cover in the future. We'll, we'll cover a lot of old timey stuff because there was a lot of crazy true crime stuff going back there. And it kind of fascinates me. <laughs> I would have loved to live in that time period and, you know, be a public enemy, number one. <laughs> yeah, things were things like that were big back in the yeah, day. Yeah, I mean, you know, Great Depression, stuff like that. Uh, you know, people had to do those things to survive a lot of times. Uh, so Vernon Miller, he was tasked with the escape of, uh, to help us get Nash out of this custody. And he was at Malloy's restaurant in KC. He made several phone calls to gather henchmen for the task. An official FBI reports it's alleged that the Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, and most people are going to know who that is if you know about anything gangsters in the past, and his sidekick, Adam Ricchetti, arrived in KC to aid in this rescue. Now, there's a lot of speculation if he was even there or not. So, a number of outlaw friends of Nash had heard of his capture in Hot Springs. They learned the time of the scheduled arrival of Nash and his captors in Kansas City and made plans to free him. The scheme was conceived and engineered by Richard Tallman Gladys. According to the FBI report, Floyd and Rochetti happened to be on the way to Kansas City, but had been detained in Bolivar, Missouri, early on the morning of the 16th, when the car in which they were riding became disabled. While the two were waiting in a local garage for the necessary repairs to the car, Sheriff Jack Killingsworth, what a name for a sheriff, <laughs> entered the building. Killingsworth. I mean, he was like either born to be a sheriff or a criminal, for real. Or maybe both. Or both, you know, back then, man. <laughs> but you're going to find out he has a bad end. Rischetti, who immediately recognized the sheriff, seized a machine gun and held the sheriff and the garage attendants up against the wall. Floyd drew two 45 caliber machine pistols and ordered all parties to remain motionless. Floyd and Rischetti then transferred their arsenal into another automobile and ordered the sheriff to enter that vehicle. The two, along with their prisoner, drove to deep water, Missouri. Deep water. My mom just... Uh, a place not far from there, abandoned that automobile and com commandeered another. After releasing the sheriff, they arrived in Kansas City about 10 p.m. on June 16th. There, Floyd and Rochetti abandoned that automobile and stole another car to which they transferred their baggage and firearms. Finally, that same night, they met Miller and went with him to his home. There, Miller told him of his plan to free Frank Dash. And remember, this is all the FBI's report. So... I don't think we can really deny that they were probably there, but I don't know. Early the next morning, according to the FBI account, Miller, Floyd, and Rochetti drove to Union Station in a Chevy sedan. There, they took up their positions to await the arrival of Nash and his captors. All right, this is when things are going to start getting crazy. This whole thing happens in like 30 seconds. Literally. So, like, it's going to take me longer to talk about the whole thing than the actual event that happened. So upon the arrival of the train in Kansas City, Agent Lackey, one of the, the uh, BOI agents, went to the loading platform, leaving Smith, Reed, and Nash in a stateroom off the train. On the platform, platform he was met by S Special Agent in Charge Vetterelli, who was accompanied by FBI Agent Raymond J. Caffey and Officers W.J. Grooms and Frank Hermanson of the Kansas City Police Department. These men surveyed the area surrounding the platform and saw nothing that aroused their suspicion. Special Agent in Charge Vertorelli advised Agent Lackey that he and Caffey had brought two cars to Union Station and that the cars were parked immediately outside. Agent Lackey then returned to the train and accompanied by Chief Reed, Vertorelli, Agents Caffrey and Smith, and Officers Hermanson and Grooms. 
proceeded from the train through the lobby of Union Station. At the time, both Agent Lackey and Chief Reed were armed with shotguns. Other officers carried pistols. Frank Nash walked through Union Station with the seven officers. Upon leaving Union Station, the lawmen with the captive paused briefly, again, seeing nothing that aroused their suspicions. They don't look very well. <laughs> they must be blind. They proceeded to Caffey's Chevrolet. For, or the guys just hit good. I just don't find that as the scenario, though. Frank Nash was handcuffed throughout the trip from the train to the Chevrolet, which was parked directly in front of the east entrance of Union Station. Agent Caffey unlocked the right door of the Chevrolet. When the door was open, Nash started to get into the back seat. However, Agent... Oh, my God. I hope that doesn't... Whoa. Do <laughs> yeah, I heard it. My stomach totally just growled like crazy. That's going to be hilarious if that shows up. I'm going to leave it I'm in. Not, hey, I need my snacks, Jasmine. You didn't bring any snacks today. <laughs> last last time I brought snacks, um, I, we're, we were recording. I almost ate, ate a chip. Yes, and I had to stop her. <laughs> One of these days, she's going to do it, though. Just, just pre-warning you guys if you hear a crunch... It's just Jasmine and her snacks. It's that hot chip. And, and obviously, you're going to hear my stomach growling in the mockery. Anyway, okay. Back to the story. Focus. Agent Caffrey unlocked the right door on the Chevrolet. When the door was open, so he told him to get in the back seat. However, Agent Lackey told him to get in the front seat. So Agent Lackey then climbed into the back of the car, directly behind the driver's seat. Agent Smith sat beside him in the center of the back, and Chief Reed sat beside Smith in the right rear seat. There was a lot of S's in that sentence. (laughs) I hope I don't sound like that. At this point, Agent Caffrey walked around the car to get into the driver's seat through the left door. Vetterelli stood with officers Hermanson and Grooms at the right side near the front of the car. A green Plymouth was parked about six feet away on the right side of Agent Caffey's car, looking in the direction of this Plymouth. Agent Lackey saw two men run from behind a car. He noticed that both men were armed, at least one of them with a machine gun. Before Agent Lackey had a chance to warn his fellow officers, one of the gunmen shouted, Up! Up! At this, there it went again, at this instant, Agent Smith it makes me think of uh, the Matrix. When I read that, Agent Smith, uh, what does he always say? Yeah, don't ask me. I don't watch that movie. Mr. Smith or something. I don't know. Anyway, who was in the middle of the back seat? Also saw a man with a machine gun to the right of the Plymouth. Vetterelli, who was standing at the right front of the Chevrolet, turned just in time to hear a voice command. Let him have it. I can hear it right now. Let him have it, sir. <laughs> You know, the this lucky picture in the old gangster movies. Catch me alive, sir. <laughs> I wish my man wasn't here to do that because he does it way better than me. <laughs> At this point, from a distance, approximately 15 feet diagonally to the right of Agent Caffrey's Chevrolet, an individual crouched behind the radiator of another car opened fire. Officer Grooms and Herbinson immediately fell to the ground dead. Those poor guys. They were just there for the gun support and mm-hmm. boom, they're dead. Ugh, that sucks. Special Agent Vetterelli, who was standing beside Officers Grimms and Hermanson, was shot in the left arm and dropped to the ground. As he attempted to scramble to the left side of the car to join Agent Caffrey, who had not yet entered the driver's seat of the Chevrolet, Vetterelli saw Caffrey fall to the ground. He had been fatally wounded in the head. Mm. 
Inside the car, Frank Nash and Chief Reed were killed. Agents Lackey and Smith were able to survive the massacre by falling forward in the back seat of the Chevrolet. Lackey was struck and seriously wounded by three bullets in the back. Smith was unscathed. The three gunmen rushed to the lawman's car and looked inside. One of them was heard to shout, they're all dead. Let's get out of here. With that, they raced toward a dark-colored Chevrolet. Just then, a Kansas City policeman emerged from Union Station and began firing. And remember, this happened in 30 seconds. So when I say just then, and you're like, what took him so long? It was because this whole thing was like in 30 seconds. So this, just then, a Kansas City policeman emerged from Union Station and began firing in the direction of one of the killers, later identified as Floyd, who slumped briefly but continued to run. The killers entered the car, which sped westward out of the parking area and disappeared. The three survivors, Agent Smith, Lackey, and Vetterelli, reported that the assault lasted possibly 30 seconds, like I've said. They were uncertain if three or four gunmen staged the assault. From their account, it was apparent that the two Kansas City police officers were killed immediately, followed seconds later by Frank Nash and Chief Reed, and then by Agent Caffrey who was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead on arrival. Ugh, all these guys. The FBI immediately initiated an investigation to identify and apprehend the gunman. The investigation developed evidence that the scheme was carried out by Vernon C. Miller, Adam C. Rochetti, and Pretty Boy Floyd. The evidence included Latin fingerprint impressions located by FBI agents on beer bottles in Miller's Kansas City home and identified as those of Adam Rochetti, thus helping to link the latter to the crime. So basically because they had been at Miller's house and had drunk a beer with him and their beer was behind them, they had to have something to do with it. That was the evidence they were going off of. So let's talk about Vernon Miller, the mastermind of the massacre. On November 29, 1933, during the FBI's search for Miller, his mutilated naked body was found in a ditch on the outskirts of Detroit, Michigan. He had apparently been killed as a result of a run-in with a criminal gang in New Jersey, which the way he was found was typical of that time. Several authors, including J. Robert Nash, have used Miller's death to argue that the massacre was not a rescue attempt, but a syndicate hit meant to silence Frank Nash, who had extensive underworld connections. I mean, he was known to be like the best bank robber like of the time. So he definitely had a lot of ties and probably knew a lot of things about some big mob people. So it makes sense to me, mm-hmm. but that's not what I think happened. <laughs> Rochetti and Floyd were involved in an automobile accident in Wellsville, Ohio on October 20th, 1934, in which the automobile that Floyd was driving crashed into a telephone pole. Police Chief J.H. Foltz went out to investigate and shootout took place with Floyd and Rochetti. Chief Foltz apprehended Rochetti after Rochetti had emptied his gun at the officer. Floyd escaped, but the police chief thought Floyd might have been wounded. Adam Rochetti, following his apprehension, was returned to Kansas City. He was tried for the murders in the Kansas City Massacre and was convicted on June 17, 1935, approximately two years after the massacre. He was sentenced to death. Following appeals and resentencing, he was executed on October 7, 1938. <laughs> we'll leave that in. That's Jess's alarm. What, what's the My alarm? vitamins. Oh, better take your vitamins. Um... So, yeah, they didn't fuck around with executions back then, man. Mm. Like, they'd be staying on death row for 
20, 30 years, but like within three years he was executed. I mean, a little over three years. So yeah, now they take, now they take forever. Yeah. I mean, I get why they do because, you know, they want to make sure, but Mm -hmm. if somebody gets put on death row in the first place, I don't know, you know? So after an intensive search, the FBI and a team of local police officers located pretty boy Floyd hiding on a farm just outside Clarkson, Ohio. On October 22nd, 1934, Floyd shot it out with the law enforcement officers and was killed in the shootout. At the time Floyd was killed, a watch and fob consisting of a lucky piece were found on his person. He also, I believe, had some last words that he said. Uh, yeah, uh, when he was running towards the officers, he was like, I'm done for, you hit me twice. And then he died 15 minutes later. Lord, okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I don't even know if I came across that. That's interesting. So he had groups of 10 notches were found on each of these items, reportedly carved by Floyd as an indication of the number of people he had killed. I mean, come on. <laughs> With his dying breath, Floyd denied he was involved in the shooting. The four individuals who aided in the conspiracy, Richard Galatis, Herbert Farmer, Doc Lewis Stasi, and Frank Malloy, were... I'm saying Stasi because that that's the name of the last name of the person. It probably isn't how I say it. It's probably Stacy or something, but Stasi is in my head, so... We, we had that problem last yeah, time. Yeah, I know, right? They were indicted by the federal grand jury at Kansas City, Missouri on October 24th, 1934. On January 4th, 1935, the four were found guilty of conspiracy to cause the escape of a federal prisoner from the custody of the United States. That's a long charge. On the following day, each was sentenced to serve two years in a federal penitentiary and pay a fine of 10000 the maximum penalty allowed by law. 10000 was a lot of money back then, though. The Kansas City Massacre changed the FBI. Before this event, the agency, which I had mentioned earlier, did not have the authority to carry firearms, although some agents reportedly did, and make arrests. They could make citizens arrest and then call a U.S. Marshal or a local law enforcement officer. But a year later, after this massacre, Congress gave the FBI statutory authority to carry guns and make arrests. In May and June 1934, the FBI acquired their first Thompson submachine guns and the Winchester Model 1907 self-loading rifles. But after requesting the Remington Arms provide a replacement for the Winchester, the agency later adopted specially modified variants of the Remington Model 81 semi-automatic rifle. The reason is why I believe there is definitely some kind of conspiracy involved. If you have any idea of J. Edgar Hoover's character, then you know it's very likely he had a hand in this because he wanted his agents to be armed. Mm-hmm. We will certainly do an episode on Hoover's history when I have the time and get better at my research. <laughs> um, another theory, of course, is that this was never a rescue attempt for Nash but a way to make sure to silence any information he had on many, many big crime gangs and mob organizations. So, I mean, honestly, it could be either way. I really believe that it was staged by the FBI somehow, some way, because they were trying to push through getting these firearms and stuff, Uh and they needed something big to happen to prove. But it very well could have been a mob hit, too. I mean, you know, we'll we'll never know. (laughs) We'll never really know. But what we do know is that in 30 seconds, some people lost their lives. And it was really stupid. 
I mean, it was supposed to be a rescue attempt, but nobody mm-hmm. was ever attempted to rescue. They just started firing. So, I mean, yeah, definitely it, it literally somebody but, murdered him and they were sent to murder him, whether it was the FBI behind it or the mom. So, so now let's get into the hauntings of Union Station. Uh, yes, stories of a hunt have swirled about Union Station for many years. Some people have reported seeing figures, figure of a man in dark suits outside the building near where the massacre, massacre took place. When a, approached, these figures always vanish. Uh, there are also stories of footsteps being heard on the pavement outside and inside the building in the area leading out uh, to the parking lot. Some have, some have surmised that these uh, phantom footsteps Maybe the reenactment of the last footsteps taken by Frank Nash and the federal uh, federal agents as they walk to their doom. Yeah, the ghost of Frank Nash is perhaps the most commonly reported specter connected to the massacre. I mean, visitors and staff members have reportedly seen Nash's ghost at several different locations in Union Station, both in the daytime and at night. And we were just talking about it earlier, too. About how we both like get the creepy vibes <laughs> yeah. at the union station. Like, I mean, it, I haven't seen anything. I mean, nothing. I haven't heard or seen anything. But there is definitely some energy in that place. It gives you like the old timey, scary, creepy oh, yeah. vibe. It, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's still gorgeous to this day. It's, mm-hmm. If you ever are in Kansas City, you definitely want to check out Union Station because it's a landmark and it's beautiful. I mean, it's in a lot of our picture backdrops and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So. And, and then they always switch, like, add different decorations depending oh, yeah. on like, the time of the year. I and mean, what if our chiefs are doing good or the royal are doing good? The chiefs make- are always doing good. Well, yes. <laughs> now that we have our boy Mahomes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Haters going to hate, y'all. I know we're going to have some people out there who are going to want to talk on us, but we don't care. We're from Kansas City and we love Mahomes and we always will. <laughs> okay. So do you have any final thoughts on this? Uh, n- nope. Oh, I, I, I did want to put in... Um, about a pretty boy Floyd. He went to a uh, prison. He was in prison uh, in Jefferson City, which now you can go do like a ghost tour. Mm-hmm. And like you learn so much history on him. Like you get to see like where his cell was. Like they'll tell we you all about him. We cover that prison too. Yeah. And you've already been there. Uh-huh. I haven't. So and it's, when we it's get into the point haunting. where we have Patreon and stuff, that's like one of our plans is to like go to these places and do a show like live from there mm-hmm. for you guys. So, I mean, you can look for that in the future if you guys like us and keep on wanting to listen to us and we're putting these podcasts out, you know what I mean? So I'm going to give you guys my sources. So Wikipedia on this one, I don't usually like to use Wikipedia, but it was a good source for this because I did fact check it on other stuff too. Um, AmericanHauntingsInc.com slash Kansas City. There was a great story on that one. The FBI website, History Famous Cases, and KCHistory.org. So all of those had a lot of uh, info on this. And this is just to give you guys a little taste of what we're going to be about. I mean, it's a shorter episode than some of our other ones will be. But uh, we hope you guys like it. And coming up next, we are going to have on part two, which you're actually going to get at the same time as mm-hmm. this one, is... I'm Kansas City serial killer, and he's called John Edward Robinson, or he also goes by... The Slave Master, the first internet serial killer, so he has a few of them there, and we're actually doing a three-parter on him. So we've already got two of them recorded, 
And yeah. we're going to give you the first one with this. And then next oh, the week yeah. after that, it'll be the second part. And then from there on out, it's going to be weekly for you guys. We're not sure what day yet is going to be our normal day. <laughs> so we'll get back to you on that to be, to be announced. So to without further ado, if you guys want to reach out to us, you can go to our Facebook page. Uh-huh. At uh, Wild Wicked World. Or wow. our Instagram is 3W Podcast. Our TikTok is 3W Podcast. Or you can email us at... 3WPodcast2022 at gmail.com. Come back and check us out here at Wild Wicked World.